Well, the first thing I think he would do would be to stand up and tell the truth. I mean, he had a great expression that was uh, just tell the truth and watch them scatter. So the further away the problem is, uh, the easier it is to postpone action on it. And that's essentially what we're doing. Be real. Because people in New Hampshire are really cool. I'd say get in the game. This is a problem facing your generation. You have to have a voice in the decision. Welcome to Facing the Future, brought to you by the Concord Coalition on WKXL, New Hampshire's talk radio station. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how they affect our nation's future. This week, we'll talk about congressional dysfunction, whether it's grown in recent years and why it matters. Our guests are former New Hampshire Congressman Paul Hodes and political analyst Matt Robeson. Now, if those names sound familiar to listeners of WKXL, uh, they should. Hodes and Robeson host Beyond Politics and Great Ideas every week on this station. Concord Coalition Policy Director Tori Gorman, who's had her own experience with political dysfunction up on Capitol Hill, uh, we'll join that conversation. And then in a later segment, Concord's chief economist, Steve Robinson, will join me and Tori for a roundup of recent developments in Washington with regard to the Build Back Better Act, the debt limit, and inflation. Paul, Matt, and Tori, welcome to Facing the Future. You know, um, we spent a lot of time on this show looking at the details of various legislative proposals, and we certainly plan to keep doing that. But in this segment, I wanted to take, you know, a broader look at political dysfunction and, and take advantage of your collective wisdom and experience on the Hill to look at, you know, whether Congress is becoming more or, or less dysfunctional. Uh, I mean, there seems to be some evidence on both sides. Every year, we come right up to the brink and have a uh, threat of a shutdown on appropriations bills because I can't pass them on time. Sometimes I don't pass any of them on time. Uh, it seems like we're having repeated uh, showdowns over the, the debt limit and whether there's going to be a, a, a default. And it's very hard to get a good discussion going, a good rational, uh, even bipartisan discussion going on a lot of key topics like climate change or immigration reform or tax reform. Uh, everything seems to fall into political silos. And yet, one could argue on the other side uh, that, you know, they are getting things done. They just passed a, a huge infrastructure bill with bipartisan support. And last year, they acted swiftly and aggressively and in a bipartisan way on uh, COVID relief. So, you know, maybe Congress is, uh, is actually accomplishing a lot. So, Paul, let me start with you as a, as a former member of Congress. Is this all just sort of inevitable, ugly, but necessary sausage making? Uh, or are there larger systemic or societal forces at, at, at play here? Uh, yes and no. Um, the, the answer is that it's certainly uglier than it was when I was uh, in, in serving in Congress. Um, I left in 2011. Um, and and things were were challenging, and uh, the parties um, uh, were oh, were were at odds. But in 2011, Democrats um, uh, at that point had had uh, four years of a significant majority 
uh, and uh, two years with a Democratic president to get things done. And remember, we passed uh, Obamacare with zero Republican support, um, couldn't get anybody. Uh, things have certainly gotten uglier since then. Um, so from a systemic standpoint, um, yes, things have gotten done uh, for Democrats recently with a slim majority and a little bit of support from Republicans. So that supports the argument that, well, things are actually getting done. On the other hand, uh, I just um, came back from a visit to D.C. and visited the hallowed halls where I used to meander my way down to the floor and talk with a number of my former colleagues. And there is doom, gloom and despair um, on the at least the Democratic side of the aisle about the way it feels, their ability to communicate with the other party about anything. And um, looking forward, there's not a lot of of uh, sunny optimism ab about the future and over arching this entire question is the challenge to democracy that is unprecedented that we face um, from the former president, um, his acolytes, his followers, what happened on January 6th, the way the Republicans have basically dismissed that as uh, as a uh, tourist event and the threat to the demo to democracy, I think, um, and the threat to our system of voting really hangs over this whole question um, and suggests that we are in a period of deep, regressive uh, dysfunction. Um, and uh, it's not going to end anytime soon and it's not going to be pretty. You actually anticipated a question of, of uh, you know, how your former colleagues are uh, thinking about this. I mean, are there other other members, I know other members are in touch quite a bit. I mean, is that a subject that, that comes up about how things might be reformed or, or rescued, I guess is a better way to put it. During with my conversations, uh, my recent conversations with a number of members of the House, nobody was talking about how things could be made better. It was all, frankly, doom and gloom and despair about how bad things are, except for um, uh, uh, Congressman uh, John Sarbanes, who was holding out hope that um, uh, the that some form of voting rights could actually pass. He was the bright spot in an otherwise fairly dark assessment. Um, he was uh, he was he was hopeful. He was he was um, not sunny, but mildly hopeful. And, and that was good to hear, because I think uh, both Matt Robeson and I have talked frequently about uh, the overarching issue of what's happening with our electoral system and the dysfunction um, from, in our democracy from the challenge of authoritarianism. You know, uh, Matt and Tori, um, you've, you've both worked in the trenches uh, as congressional staffers on both sides of the aisle. And I'm just wondering from the from the congressional staff position, uh, have you noticed a, a, a change? I mean, I'll just say in the, in, the, in the way things work, the way things come together or don't come together. Yeah, I mean, I think in speaking with some of my former colleagues, I think time it's definitely true that there has been a change and the people who are still on the, the hill notice it. There was a time earlier in, in my career and Tori's career where she and I, despite working on 
for different political parties probably would have been able to get on the phone behind the scenes once the cameras were off from our bosses and say, all right, how are we going to how are we going to work this out? And in fact, that's what I used to do when I was working for Paul. And the way that we got the Northern Border Development Commission passed was I had a whole bunch of Republican colleagues. Believe me, these were my best assets and my best allies. We still talk all the time. We are we are legitimately friends and that helped. It made a difference. I know people bemoan the fact that people don't go out for beers anymore. I'm not so convinced that that's sort of the dominant factor, the beer index, right? Mm-hmm. Like, but on the other hand, there was an ability to get things done. I, I had Bernie Sanders, former chief of staff on the Beyond Politics show. People can check that out in the Beyond Politics podcast feed. And, you know, she was talking about that. She says that for her, now that she's off the hill, the key for getting an agenda item done is it's very zen. It's don't get noticed because as soon as you're on the partisan warfare radar, you're sunk. If you're if you're going to have an issue that falls below that radar, you can still behind the scenes work it out. And there are people like Tory who you know might be in a different political party, but we're all professionals. We basically have the same set of values in, in a lot of core ways, and we can work together. Mm-hmm. But once the lights are on and 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 once the the swords are out, you're sunk. Mm-hmm. I just uh, just to add to what Matt was saying, I think you know when I he and I were both uh, on staff. Um, the, the general objective was to solve problems. I mean, that's why everybody comes to Washington. That's why members of Congress come to Washington. That's why staff comes to Washington. They want to help solve problems. And I think what's surprising to me is how much, I mean, the the, the institution has always been partisan, right? That, that's, that's not a surprise. What's been surprising to me is how much bipartisanship has been punished. I mean, before we used to, you know, hold it up as, as sort of this u- unique exemplary nirvana. It's like, ooh, we have a bicameral bipartisan piece of legislation. Quick, 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 let's go to the floor. Um, but now, I mean, just looking at what happened with the infrastructure bill, the bipartisan infrastructure bill, and the fact that you had, what, 13, 16 Senate Republicans who voted for that piece of legislation. And now, you know, there are re- Republicans in the House who are saying that those members should be penalized. Um, so I just, that has been shocking to me. I mean, I'm not shocked by the politics. I'm just shocked by the fact that that there's now retribution, if you will, for bipartisanship. And that is shocking. And actually, if I could counter build on your build, I mean, first of all, <laughs> if, if we had figured out what Tory had just said as Democrats a few years ago, we would have sent Barack Obama on a hugging tour, right? Remember when he destroyed Chris Christie's political career yeah. by hugging him during Superstorm Sandy? He should have just hugged Donald Trump. That would have yeah. solved all of America's problems. But mm. you know, the other kind of insidious thing that's happened, and I, I'm sorry if this is a little bit in the weeds, but I think it matters. I, I really do. We used to have, as part of the money, the annual money spending process, the appropriations process, we used to have earmarks, right? Little pieces where each member would get a little a little bit of money to sort of say to, in the appropriations process, if you're going to spend money in my district, spend it here. And first of all, I think that's profoundly democratic because, I mean, as a Republican, I would prefer that an elected Democratic representative or Republican representative, I mean, small, small D Democratic, get a say in where money is spent, not a bureaucrat at a federal agency. But the other thing that used to happen was behind the scenes, 
there were a lot of negotiations. My first job on Capitol Hill was for the Appropriations Committee. And believe me, there was a lot of behind the scenes work going on at the staff level where we would kind of work these things out, do a lot of horse trading, and it would help to get the members of Congress on board that we had kind of done all of that work to give everyone an incentive to have hands in in the process and say, all right, I have skin in the game. I want this to pass. And you saw a lot more bills passing. You no longer see that because we've lost that tool. And it's like a little piece of bipartisanship that's that's just gone. That's why I spent so much time battling against earmarks uh, on the grounds that fiscal responsibility required us to do everything without the earmarks. Well, <laughs> thanks for that, Hodes. <laughs> Wait a second. You were my chief of staff. What? Don't, don't I was on the me. other side of that one, man. But, you know, look, when the bo- you're a staffer, when the boss wants to do something, you, you salute. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, um, the, uh, the, the, the truth comes out. Uh, looking at uh, Torio, uh, you might want to weigh in there on this, but, you know, one of the things that uh, is getting a lot of attention now regarding why things can't get done is the Senate filibuster. So looking at the other body, what, what, what are your thoughts, Paul? I know you, you didn't serve in the Senate, but I mean, this is a, a, a perpetual frustration of House members as we can pass whatever we want to. We send it over to the Senate, mm-hmm. nothing happens. And that's, you know, there's just a, a, a rising tide of um, criticism of the Senate filibuster. Um, uh, do you support ideas for reforming it or even outright eliminating it? I support reform for the filibuster. It started as a racist tool. It is an anachronism. It's uh, even even there. There's I, I don't see any good reason at this point to keep it in its current form. And I think it really does need reform. And I say that with due regard for institutional precedent. It's just a rule, people. It's not a law. It's just a rule. And it really needs to be uh, needs to be changed. And it's the sooner, the better, in my view. Oh, I'm going to. Disagree. <laughs> um, I guess my objection, my concern with the filibuster is not that it exists. I mean, that the, the role with the, the filibuster is to try and encourage, you know, cooperation and bipartisanship in p- passing legislation, because bipartisan legislation is the only durable legislation. If we could muscle through legislation through single party rule in both chambers, we'd either get nothing done or we'd get legislation uh, that would that wouldn't last very long because the next time one party controlled both chambers, they'd change everything. So I, I think the filibuster is necessary. What I, and I think it produces good outcomes when it's used the way it's intended. The filibuster it was intended as a way. I mean, right now there is no rule in the Senate that ends debate. Right now the Senate, you know, every senator has the right to debate something until they run out of air, um, and they can amend something until they run out of ideas. So they needed some sort of mechanism to say, okay, we're done debating this piece of legislation and we're ready to move to a vote on final passage. And and I think that serves a purpose. But the problem right now is the filibuster isn't being used uh, to, to bring people together to reach consensus on legislation so that they can move to final passage. Right now, it's being used to halt any kind of progress whatsoever. And it's not, it's not resulting in cooperation and negotiation. It's just putting a stop to everything. And the, the, the response 
to to the the 60 vote hurdle has been to stop talking to each other in the Senate. And that is a problem. You know, they're they're using it to stop an agenda to prevent any kind of problem solving. I mean, on one hand, the minority party is saying we don't want legislation to go forward. But on the other hand, the majority party is saying we're not willing to talk to you about any kind of ideas you might have for this legislation. So I think both parties are behaving irresponsibly when it comes to 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 the filibuster. Um, I still think it, 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 it needs to exist, but we've just got to change people's mindset. I mean, I think voters need to be more, more responsible in sending members to Congress that are really interested in solving problems and working across the aisle and, and not engaging and, and perpetuating this, this partisan warfare. Well, just to call back to a point you made on The Great Ideas Show, and, and Dory had a really blockbuster, outstanding appearance on The Great Ideas Show. Check that out wherever you get your podcast. It was a wonderful explanation of how reconciliation works. And you said, much as you said today, you know, look, we need bipartisan legislation. We need durable legislation. And in the absence of being able to do that, and in the presence of the filibuster, the backstop, by default, has become reconciliation as a, as a workaround. And you pointed out on that show, no, that's a terrible idea. It's a terrible workaround because you end up with kind of these long shots squirming around the rules approaches that, that make for bad policy. And you've seen that play out in the Affordable Care Act, where we had all these contortions to try and make it work under reconciliation. And we've, we've spent a decade kind of dodging it getting repealed and trying to fix all of the flaws in the original legislation. And so the outcome is totally bad. So I, in a way, I think we're kind of landing in the same place, which is the filibuster as it currently exists is leading to lots of bad stuff. And there probably needs to be some change. Ultimately, though, I think Tory is right. Inside dynamics respond to outside political pressures. And until the outside politics stops incentivizing both parties to be as extreme as possible and to stand in the way of everything that the other party wants to do, we're not going to see any change inside the chambers. Right. I just now, don't think we should change outside, the. I, I was going to say, I just don't uh, think we I should. I wanted to, to get, talk about, move on to a, a slightly <laughs> different subject <laughs> uh, since we're uh, running out of time for this segment, because Matt, you mentioned outside influences and, uh, you know, I can think of two. Uh, and Paul, uh, feel free to weigh in on these. Um, you know, one is the role of money in politics because people are running around having to raise so much money for campaigns. And the way you raise money is to be incendiary about things that, that gets more of a return. The, the, the flip side of that is that when you do, you know, you, you've said these horrible things about uh, the other side. How do you get back to Washington and try to work with them? That's one thing. I don't know whether that's a thing or not. I mean, you can you can tell me since you've both been involved in, in campaigns. The other one is social media, which is become, you know, uh, much more of a driving force. Certainly it didn't exist when the concrete coalition started. And I just wonder if that lends itself to a more truncated partisan kind of a debate and gets in the way of getting things done. Um, look, my perspective is that the money in politics has been a pretty old saw and a pretty accurate saw for a long time. Um, the way we raise money um, does not necessarily incentivize principled stands on issues or uh, comedy 
and uh, conciliatory behavior when you're working with the other side. I think the impact of social media, um, especially over the past decade, is much greater um, and much more insidious. Um, While it has democratized the debate, it's given everybody a voice and amplified extreme voices and given a voice to the extremes in our political system that otherwise never had the means to really be out there in the public square. And that has led um, folks in both parties to cater uh, to the extremes uh, of of their constituencies. And I don't think it's helped our political system. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman and I have been talking with former New Hampshire Congressman Paul Hodes and political analyst Matt Robison. Robison, right? Okay, I'll finally get that right. And we've been talking about growing congressional dysfunction and uh, why it matters. Um, We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. And in this segment, Concord Coalition Policy Director Tori Gorman and Chief Economist Steve Robinson and I will discuss recent events in Washington with regard to the Build Back Better Act, inflation, and the debt limit. Uh, let's begin with inflation. Uh, Steve, uh, this, is, this is your bailiwick. Um, uh, and inflation has certainly become a big story and a, and a big problem in recent months. And, uh, you know, recently the, the Fed dropped uh, use of the term transitory. Uh, I guess it was becoming painfully obvious that we were not dealing with a transitory problem here. Um, so this, this rise in inflation, um, what's your overall take on this and whether it's transitory or, or how is it seeping into the economy overall? Um, well, it's, I think it's still a little hard to tell. I think the Fed is right. Transitory is now passe. It's, it's, it appears to be somewhat baked in the cake. Um, how big the cake becomes and how many layers of the cake there, there will be uh, remains to be seen. But but yeah, whipped cream, it, chocolate frosting, whatever. Exactly. Yeah. So let me let me talk just a little bit about inflation in general and, and the difficulty in, in trying to figure out what's really going on. I mean, obviously, back in the, the late 1970s and early 1980s, uh, the, the inflation is measured by just the overall consumer price index was in the, you know, it peaked around 10 to 15% over that period. And so we're not by any means at the level we were back in the, in the early 1980s. Um, the, the latest number for November uh, came out last week. It was 6.8%, uh, which is high. I mean, remember the Federal Reserve um, has, has adopted, you know, informally and, and also in recent times more formally, a 2% inflation uh, target. Now, of course, the Fed prefers to use the personal consumption expenditure index, which is a little different than the consumer price index, uh, which, of course, is part of the problem is there are different ways of measuring prices. You know, economists often look at the issue of, well, we know that food and energy prices are very volatile that they can, from month to month, year to year, food and energy prices can go way up and they can go way down. And that sometimes distorts the price index. And so what often they do is instead of looking at the total CPI, they do what's called the core CPI. 
And essentially they throw food and energy out and they say, well, what are, what are prices for everything else doing? And by that measure, obviously inflation is not as high, but there actually is, is a, a, even a third measure of, of CPI. Uh, it's called the trimmed CPI, which let me sort of explain what they're doing by trimming. Essentially, the, the, uh, the Bureau of Labor Statistics takes the 8% of goods and services that are increasing the fastest and the 8% of goods and services that are decreasing the most, and they throw them out. So essentially, they're looking at the price of all the goods and services minus the, the 8% that's the fastest and the 8% that's the lowest. So it's sort of a variation on core, but it allows not just food and energy to drop out of your measure, but it allows whatever is going up and down the fastest to be dropped out. Well, by that measure, uh, back in October, the trimmed CPI was actually almost 9%. And in December, it was almost 6.5%. So, you know, it, it's clear by almost any measure of inflation, and, and obviously the trimmed CPI has, has increased you know, faster more recently, which suggests that this is not simply a question of food and energy or you know, some things going up and some things going down. It, it appears to be a, a much broader pervasive uh, inflation phenomenon. Now, again, we're, we're nowhere near where we were you know, before, but I think it is troubling that we seem we, we are, we're seeing a much more broad and pervasive measure uh, that, that we haven't seen in recent years. Well, you know, this is the first time in a long time that, that people have had to worry about inflation. Uh, you know, the, the, the Fed has been actually trying to increase inflation to back up to a target of 2%, and now we've leaped over this. But it, the issue of inflation has worked its way into the debate over the Build Back Better Act. And yeah, you know, Republicans are saying that if you pass the Build Back Better Act, it will simply stoke inflation. It will feed into the uh, spending that's already occurred and uh, make inflation worse. And the Democrats are saying, no, no, this is the this is the cure for inflation because uh, it's going to lower the cost of things like childcare subsidies and pharmaceuticals and take some of the pressure off. Um, what are your thoughts, just generally, uh, on the uh, role of inflation in the Build Back Better debate? Yeah, so it's one of those, is the glass half full or is the glass half empty? So it, it kind of, you know, depends on where you sit. I mean, obviously, the Republicans are opposed to the bill. And so they're looking for things that are going to make the situation worse. And the Democrats support the bill. And so they're trying to argue that it's going to, it's going to make it better. Um, unfortunately, you know, it's a little more nuanced than that. You have, I guess, two issues. One is in the scheme of a $20 trillion economy, the Build Back Better bill is, you know, for the first five years, it's about $150 billion a year. So to give you some context, $150 billion a year sounds like a lot. And from a Keynesian perspective, we know, you know what's called the, the multiplier. If we spend $150 billion, the government spends $150 billion then that will, in theory, multiply through the economy and have an effect. Now, it could have an effect both on prices because we're spending that money, and it could have effect on the supply uh, because we're doing things, you know, the Democrats argue that their childcare uh, subsidies are going to allow uh, women or parents in general to, to enter the workforce because they don't have to worry about, you know, childcare for their kids. So, you know, there's, again, back to the 
glass half full, glass half empty, you know, th- there are issues that, that, that affect the supply side and the demand side. Um, but, but, you know, on the other side, for example, the Family Medical Leave Act. So we're going to basically allow parents of newborn children uh, to, to receive four weeks of paid leave. Now, you could look at that one way to say, well, let's see, there are three and a half million births a year, and we're going to allow all of those moms to take four weeks off. You, you could argue that if all those moms were working and they all took four weeks off, well, you know, on a full-time equivalent basis, that's almost 300,000 jobs. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we've reduced the supply of labor by basically paying moms to stay out of the workforce. So, you know, you could argue, well, that's going to be inflationary because, if you reduce the supply of goods and services or reduce the workers who are supplying the goods and services, um, you know, that, that, that has an effect on the quantity. And of course, inflation is a function of both prices paid for each item, and it's a function of uh, the quantity that's being produced. So, you know, it, it can cut both ways. The other, of course, the other problem is, you know, inflation is measured by prices that consumers pay. So for example, childcare says, or the childcare proposal says we're going to cap um, childcare expenditures at seven percent of family income. Well, if the CPI only measures out-of-pocket spending, for example, the same thing is true for healthcare. Uh, the CPI includes the portion that people spend out of pocket, um, but that's not all of healthcare spending. In fact, you know, on average, people spend only about ten percent of total healthcare spending out of pocket. So if healthcare prices are going up, but the amount that people are spending is not going up. It doesn't show up in CPI, but it obviously can show up in terms of, you know, your overall standard of living because, you know, somebody's got to pay for the subsidies that are preventing families from spending the money out of pocket. So, you know, I guess sort of the long story here is, you know, in the scheme of things, Build Back Better is not really big enough to stoke inflation or cure inflation and there are numerous provisions that cut both ways. Some of them make the problem worse. Some of them make the problem better. You know, what the net effect is going to be, it's, it's too early to tell, but I think it's unlikely the effect will be very large. So, Steve, I guess the, the question I'd like to ask is, is to take the discussion on inflation back up to you know, 35,000 feet and talk a little bit about, you know, haven't there been recent shocks to the economy Um that might give us some indication of why some of this inflationary pressure that we're seeing right now is indeed something that's going to pass relatively soon. But then there are certain other external shocks that maybe do not lend themselves to you know a, 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 t- a temporary nature, if you will, of, of this level of inflation. So we've got you know the economy is being buffeted by multiple sort of supply side shocks. I was wondering if you could talk about those in addition to what we're seeing uh, in, in monetary policy. Yeah, so I mean, obviously, there are a lot of offsetting factors here. So you go back to, you know, the the pandemic beginning in February of of 2020. I mean, literally, we shut down the economy in April. I mean, we employment fell by almost 25, 26 million jobs. You know, you had closures of of restaurants, travel, the, the rental car industry shut down, travel, hotels, restaurants. You know, so there was a huge supply shock to the economy where we simply reduced employment and reduced reduced services um, dramatically. And of course, that, you know, last year we saw prices falling. Uh, The unemployment rate, you know, went down. 
not not negative unemployment. I, I'm sorry, uh, not, not negative inflation, but but the inflation rate was was falling relative to where it had been. Um, and so clearly, you know, you have continuing effects on the economy. And obviously, the biggest in the food sector, you know, because of the concerns over COVID, you know, meat processing plants were you know, to a large degree, you know, running, you know, they were missing employees, they were running their assembly lines much slower, they were closing. So, you know, so hopefully, as more people get vaccinated, um, you know, the notion of having to close down jobs and shops and, and restaurants, again, hopefully that won't happen. So the supply side will, will hopefully come back. Um, although, again, we're still down roughly 4 million jobs from the peak last year. So yeah, cl clearly there are supply side shocks that are likely to be temporary. Hopefully they will reverse themselves. And you know, the inflationary pressures due to those forces are, are likely to subside. You're listening to Facing the Future. We're talking about inflation uh, and the debt limit and the Build Back Better Act. Uh, we'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Concord Coalition Policy Director Tori Gorman is joining me for this segment. And Tori, we're going we're gonna to look at a couple of things that are going on in Washington. First up, it seems that they have come to some sort of resolution on the debt limit. How did they get there and what did they do? Some people would refer to it as a Texas two-step, um, but they definitely created a, a two-step process. Uh, Republicans and Democrats got together to create a two-step process to address the need for Congress to raise the debt limit. Uh, last week, House, uh, Senate Republicans and Democrats passed legislation that would allow Senate Democrats to pass an increase in the statutory debt limit on a simple majority basis. So just with a party line vote, you know, as we know, most things in the Senate require 60 votes to get across the finish line if you want to beat back a filibuster. So they passed special legislation last week. It's a one time only uh, exemption for the, the debt limit. So a, a single piece of standalone legislation that would increase the debt limit uh, can get past the Senate floor with just a simple majority vote. And that vote, that piece of legislation, they're actually going to address this week. Because as we know, uh, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen said, Congress, I need you to raise the debt limit by December 15th. So here, uh, the Senate is working through legislation today. Um, they're going to vote on legislation that would increase the statutory debt limit by $2.5 trillion dollars which would take the statutory debt limit up to somewhere around $31 trillion total. And that is expected to give the federal government and the Treasury Department enough cash, enough running room uh, to get us past the November 2022 elections and possibly into the calendar year 2023 before the debt limit becomes an issue once again. And this was... Uh... It's kind of a solution that all sides could claim some sort of victory. Uh, I guess you have to, I, you know, there's a lot of machinations here, maybe, uh, you know, gimmickry and a good cause, but they, <laughs> they managed to come together. But in some ways, it's, you know, it's, a, it's a, a, an interesting piece of legislative artwork. Um, so they came out of this and both sides got to claim 
some sort of victory out of it. How, how is that? Yeah. So that's I mean, that's the key to success in, in Washington. Right. Was where good politics and good policy intersect. And that's where we see it with this debt limit legislation. The good policy is that, OK, we're raising uh, the statutory debt limit and we're raising it a substantial amount so that so we don't have to deal with this for another 15, 18 months. That's and good. We do, and good we, and we don't have to. Def- we don't have to right. default. <laughs> right. We don't have to default. It's good for the economy. You create some stability in the financial markets and the debt and the debt markets and the interest rates and everything. That's all good. Where the good politics come in is that, you know, Republicans were being very uh, uh, obstinate in not wanting to cooperate in raising the statutory debt limit. They're very upset with Democrats and that they're using reconciliation to move through huge spending bills, both in March earlier this year with the COVID. Uh, relief act and then again now trying to get this uh this uh b- massive build back better act uh through the house and senate on a party line basis and uh you know republicans were just hopping mad about that and so they didn't want to cooperate and help facilitate passage of those legislations by increasing the debt limit so they wanted democrats to pass the debt limit increase on their own And the only way to do that is via reconciliation. But reconciliation is a rather cumbersome process, especially in the Senate. Um, It would mean amending the existing uh, budget resolution. It would mean voting on a separate reconciliation bill and separate from the Build Back Better. Um, Voteramas, you know, uh, uh, politically tough amendment votes, uh, especially for senators uh, Manchin and Sinema and others who are sort of uh, uh, operating on the <laughs> on the, the the dividing line between the two parties, you know. So it was just politically politically dangerous for Democrats to go through the reconciliation process. So the solution that they've devised is that all right, Republicans don't have to lend their votes to raising the debt limit. Democrats have to raise a debt limit on their own and they have to raise it by a specific number. They don't get to use this legislation to suspend the debt limit. They actually have to put their votes behind a numerical increase in the debt limit. And I think you're going to see some campaign ads that fall out of this. But, you know, in the end, Democrats, they get an increase in the debt limit. They didn't have to go through an arduous amendment process. They didn't have to agree to some sort of big, huge, you know, spending cut, uh, Uh, machination the way they did with the Budget Control Act in 2011. Um, Republicans get to say, hey, our fingerprints aren't on this. They get to run campaign ads against the Democrats. But at the same time, the debt limit gets raised. So again, good politics meets good policy. And that's what creates success in Washington. Well, we'll, uh, I'm sure we'll be getting back to the debt limit at, uh, at some point and uh, looking at some debt limit reform proposals that uh, could prevent this uh, kind of uh, showdown from from happening in the future. There was I one other. So. Uh, what? <laughs> I hope so. I'm tired of these debt limit fights. I'm really tired. Indeed. So. There was one other uh, development that's uh, gotten some uh, attention in Washington this week. And the uh, th- that was a a letter from the Congressional Budget Office to the ranking members, the Republican chairs of the, the House and Senate Budget Committees, answering uh, the question that they posed, which mm-hmm. was a series of questions, really, which is some of these uh, some of these provisions of the Build Back Better bill that passed the House uh, expire in the next couple of years from one mm-hmm. to six years. 
And some of them are quite large. And what the Republican ranking members of the budget committees wanted to know is how much would the bill add to the deficit if you assumed that these provisions were made permanent and you didn't do something else to pay for them, like raise raise additional taxes right, right, right. in this bill or something like that. Right, right. Uh, because presumably the Democrats want these provisions to be permanent, but they they made them sunset. Right. Uh, what would what did the CBO find? So uh, taking a step back real quick, just want to remind people who are listening, the, the Build Back Better Act, as it's passed by the House, you know, it still has to go through the Senate, um, but it includes certain spending provisions that are temporary, things like the child tax credit, which is only a year, um, uh, uh, child, uh, uh, child care, um, uh, health care, uh, health care premium support, et cetera. Things of these natures are only temporary, but the, the pay fors in the legislation are permanent. All right. So what uh, the ranking members of the, the two budget committees in the House and the Senate asked CBO to do was to go back and look at a, a good chunk of these temporary provisions and say, hey, if these provisions were made permanent, how much would the legislation cost? And CBO came up with the number and they said this legislation would increase future deficits by about three trillion dollars over 10 years, including the interest costs associated with the higher deficits. So. Um, that was a pretty that was a pretty eye popping, eye opening number. Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd say so, because, you know, I think most uh, people would, uh, you know, the, the uh, Democratic leadership and the president often speak about this bill as being transformational. Right. And it's always struck me that if some of these key policies that you mentioned expire, in in one year or two years or three years or four years, uh, that's not transformational. It's uh, it's transitory to go back to our inflation exactly. discussion, and it only becomes you can only consider these transformational policies if they're if they're made permanent. And you know, so the question is going to be for democratic leadership um, in order to to extend these policies. What offsets would would be considered in the future that you you couldn't have enacted now? <laughs> exactly. And, and I think I, I mean, I hate to keep harping on the child tax credit because I, I think there are merits uh, to 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 the idea, the policy idea. But just to take a look, I mean, if, if you want, as you were saying, you know, temporary policies are not transformational right now. The child tax credit, um, you know, there's a, a refundable portion to it. And depending upon the age of your child, you can family can qualify up to uh, at least a, a partial prepayment of that benefit on a monthly basis of about three hundred dollars per child. So imagine if you've got you know two children you know under age five, and you're you could potentially qualify for six hundred dollars a month to go towards uh, childcare. Now, if that policy is only going to be extended for a single year. You know, if you're a parent, especially if you're a single parent at home with two small children, you know, are you going to make a, a, a permanent decision to go back to work or go back to school, you know, and, and put your children in childcare when you know that that money may not be there a year from now? OK, so it's, it's hard to to envision a one year extension in the child tax credit as being something that's transformational, you know, in terms of transforming the labor market and transforming women's work, parents' work, et cetera, um, if it's only extended for a year. And it's an expensive proposal, the way the policy is designed right now. You know, one year uh, of the existing uh, child 
tax credit, extending it for one year is $185 billion. When you make that permanent over 10 years, it's $1.6 trillion. And just to put that in perspective, we're voting today on legislation that the Senate is voting on legislation that would increase the debt limit by $2.5 trillion. Okay. The child tax credit alone for over 10 years. Okay. Now, granted, we're talking one year versus 10 years. Got it. But I'm just trying to give you some scope of the numbers that we're talking about here. $1.6 trillion over 10 years. So obviously, you know, transformational policies, they're expensive, right? Because they're changing behavior. Um, but as, as you say, you know, if this is truly transformational legislation, if Democrats truly believe this is transformational legislation, it's obviously going to cost a lot more than the proposal that they're putting in front of the American people today. This legislation is way more expensive than people are being led to believe. Yeah. And so I, you know, we 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 at the Concord Coalition are happy that they've got a proposal that, uh, you know, comes close on paper to paying for itself over the time that it's been um, put out there. On the other hand, we think it's very important for people to understand that the policies that are being put in place are not paid for uh, over a longer term. It's, it's kind of like having a plan to say you're building a 10-story a, a building. You've got this wonderful 10-story building. You only have financing to build the first three floors. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you're going to have a grand opening and say... <laughs> Oh, you know, how are you going to finish the rest of that building? Are you just going to have a, you know, a big stump there? So uh, all that yet to be determined. Well, that's all the time we have for this week. Uh, We've depressed people enough. Um, Tori, (laughs) thank you. Thank you for joining me. I want to thank our earlier guests, Paul Hodes, Matt Robinson and Steve Robinson for uh, joining us. Thanks to all of you for tuning in. This is Bob Bixby. I'll be back next week with another edition of Facing the Future.